Welcome, my friends, to another edition of the Inside BS Show. My guest today is Tim Kubiak, and I'm really excited to talk to him because he and I have a lot in common. We are both aging metalheads. I and Tim, we're both coffee addicts. Now, Tim, one of the things Tim says in his bio is that he's the only big guy at hot yoga, and I need to find out about hot yoga. But Tim is a sales expert. He's also the father of two adult daughters. He's got three grand dogs. We kind of have that in common, too, only I've only got two. And he's a native of Pittsburgh. Uh, his father was a businessman. His mother was a secretary turned stay-at-home mom. And she must have brought home someone else's hippie kid from the hospital, I guess, when, when he was young because, well, he feels like he's just like her. He's stubborn, strong-willed, and opinionated. Now, listen, his parents invested heavily into his education, but he's going to share with us today some of his greatest secrets, some of the really fantastic shortcuts, and he's going to give us some insider secrets to selling during the pandemic. So please join me in welcoming Tim Kubiak to the show. Hey, Tim, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. So let's talk first about hot yoga. <laughs> now, I know you said in the beginning you haven't been there since March. What drew you? What on earth draws a big guy to a class where they heat the room up and then you got to bend your body in ways that are totally unnatural? So about five years ago, I was living on the road and, you know, I lived on an airplane, lived out of a Marriott all over the world. And I'd come home on weekends. My body was so beat up from flying. I really wasn't getting enough exercise. So I literally said to my wife for my birthday, I want to try hot yoga. So she got me like a 10 card pass and I got hooked. I found most of the men there were former contact sport athletes. I grew up playing ice hockey. There was hockey players, football players, and a, a variety of other strength athletes and martial artists. And what it did is it actually got my hips and my back to make me feel 10 or 15 years younger than I did. And I got addicted and just kept staying. All right, so the is it the heat that really loosens you up? Because here's the challenge that I have. I'm I'm like you. I'm a former uh, hundred years ago contact sport athlete. Is it the heat that loosens you up? Because I can't stretch. I can't bend like that. Does the heat help? So when I started, I couldn't bend, and I had so I've dislocated shoulders terribly. And for those of you watching video, I can raise my arm now, which is an amazing thing. So it, it's actually a really slow progression. It's kind of like business. Right. You start and you're not really getting it and it's not working quite the way you think. And you just keep going and you keep working on it and you keep perfecting it. And I was fortunate where I go, the um, type of yoga they do is called sumits. And it's the sequence stays the same except for the app. So if you're in a 60 minute class, it's always the same. And some people think that's terrible, but you can actually see, are you perfecting the pose? Are you getting better at it? And the instructors see that too. And I really benefited from that sort of disciplined rigor. And over time, the flexibility came. I was completely inflexible when I started. Interesting, really interesting. How did you fill that gap in the pandemic? Because folks, as we're recording this, it is mid-January. The, the show's coming out probably the last week in January. So Tim, how did you fill the gap? I mean, that seems like it was, uh, it was an important aspect of your well-being. What did you do to fill the gap during the pandemic? So when the studio first closed, they were actually running online classes. So you went from doing it at the studio to doing it, you know, over Zoom, basically, or over Facebook Live. And then over time, as the studio reopened, some of my business commitments have put me in a situation where I can't be out in public because um, I'm working with pandemic data as part of it. Um, 
so what I did is I started doing YouTube and there's, I found studios that have similar programs on YouTube. I don't have the heat. And then Yoga by Adrian, anyone who does yoga on YouTube probably knows her. She's got like 9 million followers. She does a free thing every month of 30 workouts for 30 days. So I'm doing that and then subbing in when the weather was decent anyhow, uh, walking and cycling. Oh, okay, great. Cool. You know, it's uh, it's funny. The more, uh, the, the deeper we get into this, the pandemic I'm talking about now, the more creative people are becoming with ways to keep their body engaged and also with business. That's a, that's a really good segue for us. So tell us, tell us a little bit about how your business uh, was pre-pandemic, what you're doing now, and what you've seen, how the, how the progression has been and, and what you're seeing. So how's business going? So it's interesting. I actually started the business essentially at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm. I had packed out a corporate life and said, I want to go work with salespeople and business owners again. And so the first three months were really hard. We put a lot of time into developing some apps and some programs and best practices. And there weren't a lot of clients. Nobody was buying. So what we did is we started giving away what we saw changing in the pandemic to people that were old friends and clients. And that led to other business down the road. Now we're actually, you know, we're booked out pretty solid for a while. You know, we're taking on a few more coaching clients, but our large projects were out at least until the beginning of March before we can take on another full training course. And we're delivering it all virtually. We actually, some people did in the fall were asking us for sales kickoff stuff and thought they were still going to do live kickoffs. And we charged a premium. We said, that's great. If you want us to be there and do the live thing, that's great. It's going to be an extra X thousands of dollars more. And they'd be like, that's ridiculous. Yeah, because we don't really think you're going to do it live. But if we're wrong, you know, we're happy to take your money and show up. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening? People people didn't do it live. They decided to all do it virtual. Yeah, I, we've been at a bunch of virtual kickoffs. We've got a bunch more with some of our clients over the next couple of weeks. Nobody's moved it to live. Yeah. And how far, how far out were they booking the kickoffs? Were they booking these, like, is it September or was it December? And they thought it was going to end, like, in a month. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was October-ish, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, people start looking at that in the middle of October for early January through early February. You know, and my partner and I, we looked at, you know, what we thought we could deliver quality-wise, reworked all our material to deliver it virtually, and just simply said, look, we'll, we'll do this instead of doing a day workshop. We'll do it for this and do it for two hours or multiple sessions over multiple weeks or whatever. And it's worked out pretty well. We've had good results. We've gotten good feedback. So it's been a nice change for us. What have you What have you found about engagement when it comes to doing some of these virtual sessions? Are, do you, are you finding people more engaged, less engaged? So the first thing we did is we cut our slideware. That's one of the things we picked up on quick, mm. right? So where normally we might do 45 minutes talk and then get into an exercise, you're, you're getting five to seven minutes drink from a fire hose and we find ourselves teaching more during real world exercises and that's one of the things we try to bring in is we don't want to teach just theory you have to bring a deal or bring a situation into most of the things we do so we're working it live with you from the beginning oh interesting okay and what is the what is the mood among corporate sales teams for uh, say getting back to face to face. I would imagine a lot of the people that you work with are face to face professionals, people who sell usually in an in person environment. Uh, do they see in person coming on the horizon, or are they, you know, are they thinking that they're going to be virtual for the majority of twenty twenty one? 
So I've not had anyone go back to in-person yet, mm. right? Um, and it's an interesting debate because when you're talking to sales leaders and CFOs, they're like, are we being as effective remotely? And can we just keep rolling that money to the bottom line and drive the growth? And I know eventually it'll pivot back. I've seen it in two other recessionary things, not pandemics, right? But in my career, you had the dot-com Boston, you had the um, real estate meltdowns. Mm -hmm. And everybody drew back travel for a while, but then it accelerated again. And I think you'll see that as the vaccine comes online, you'll see people going after the big deals and being out more. And then I think you'll see some of the other things return. Yeah, I, I think a lot of companies are going to try and leverage the virtual environment for as long as they can. But I think their best salespeople are going to immediately notice a competitive advantage to face-to-face -face selling for those clients who want to meet someone in person. So, you know, if you're going up against Johnny Smith for an account and you'll fly to the client and you'll shake his hand, you'll spend an hour with him in his office, you'll do a live demo, um, you know, Johnny Smith is going to do it over Zoom, the client's going to either subconsciously or overtly prefer the guy who is willing to, or the, the gal who is willing to come and do the, the session face-to-face, -face, take the time to get on a plane, fly all the way across the country and meet him. He's going to say, wow, this guy really wants my business. The other guy, you know, he did it on Zoom. I can find people who will do it on Zoom, but this guy, he really wanted it. I think as soon as people feel comfortable that they're not going to kill themselves and their family, you're going to see really good salespeople getting on planes and going back to customers. <laughs> I agree. And I think there's a different level of not just relationship, but of discovery and innovation that comes from live in-person conversations and maybe a whiteboard chat that you just don't get in a Zoom no matter how you substitute it. And don't forget, I, I can't tell you how many deals I closed from talking to the assistant 15 minutes before walking in to meet the executive or, you know, somebody would let me in a building, even post 9-11, they let me in the building and I wander around and talk to a handful of people and uncover some great information that I use right in the meeting. You can't do that on Zoom. It's just not there. Or how hard it is to cancel when you know somebody's coming, you know, from out of town to see you, whereas, you know, you cancel on Zoom, oh, that guy's in his house. It doesn't matter if I cancel, Right. So many aspects to in-person sales that raise the level of the game, raise the stakes that I just, I think face-to-face -face is always going to be a competitive advantage. That being said, uh, what have, what's some of the feedback that you've gotten from your, your one-on-one -on -one clients, your coaching clients? Do they, do they appreciate the, the, uh, the video aspect of it? How does, you know, how has that resonated? So in the beginning, you know, and it's funny, the technology's really been here for years, right? So in the beginning, everybody kind of had, you know, web conference video fatigue, mm -hmm. you know, and now it's, it is the standard, right? Everyone's using video in almost every meeting. So I think we've all adapted to it, like we used to adapt to going to an office or going on site. The other thing I think that has happened, though, is they've noticed that the buying process has changed as part of this, right? There's new faces at the table. It's easier in some ways to get an expanded group to build consensus than it is because you can pull people in from different locations and nobody's at a disadvantage. So that's been interesting feedback. And then the other thing is really on who has signatory authority. We're seeing still that CFOs are approving things at levels that traditionally they didn't, mm. not even just good economies, but even in tight economies. So there's still some more financial controls out there, even in the midsize and up. Interesting. Okay. 
All right, let's talk a little bit about the sales process now. So what is your what is your vision of uh, the sales process today for let's take uh, let's take a services company first and then we can we can talk about products. So how has the process changed because we're in more of a more of a virtual environment? What's what's the experience of your clients been? So on the services side, I work with a lot of folks in the IT and telecom space. So some of it actually has been really good for services in the way that their customers are sweating assets longer. They're looking for alternatives to their existing maintenance agreements in many cases, you know, trying to keep things maybe even beyond the stated end of life period. Mm. So in that sense, services business has been pretty good. Um, you know, dispatch and deployment and all that is still a challenge and you, yeah, people are out there. The other part of the services though is IT shops that would go in and work on employees' computers per se. Now they're having to do it all by FedEx or mail or however you want to look at it, right? Or having drop-offs and pickups. So that's complicated, the services piece. You know, on the high end, the deployment services in several segments, actually, if people were booked out even in April and May, mm. you know, three, four months because they were dealing with the shift. So pro services revenue in a lot of segments that my clients are in has actually grown really well. And then around the software space and even some degree in the chemical space we're seeing you know more of the routine maintenance contracts being taken in because they maybe don't have the staff in-house and they've outsourced some of it to bring costs down too yeah is that uh is there a huge difference between that life cycle the the sales cycle in services compared to like say you know hard goods products or you know b2b b2b product space so the B2B product space, the one thing that's become more of a competitor for most of my clients is the no decision decision, right? So it is the exact inverse of the services mm. where they're getting looks on the services piece to keep things in place. They're having a harder time justifying some deployments and some displacement. Now, you know, as you read, there's been a lot of digital transformation and people have accelerated that e-commerce and logistics areas. Those folks have done great. You know, people in the packaging business have done amazing shifts. You know, but the fixed asset, the longer term asset, I think you've seen it. And some of the some of the shift, though, if you look in the SaaS world, SaaS has taken off. More things have migrated to cloud. So, and the high end, the ERP systems, those kind of sales have slowed down in the software space. Some of the physical goods and asset sales have slowed down, but the SaaS migrations have accelerated. So, and so is cloud usage. Yeah. Yeah. What have you, what have you seen and how do you coach your clients on providing a fantastic experience? I mean, we spent a lot of time, we still spend a lot of time with our clients teaching them the beginning to end of the sales cycle and making sure that the client has a fantastic experience. And one of the things we found, and you can kind of uh, give us your input on this, is that people find it harder to create that great experience because it's all virtual, right? At some point, there was always there, there was always a touch point where, you know, you would meet the person once a year. I mean, even in my business, I would do a lot of virtual stuff, but I would have an annual event. And a lot of people would come in for the annual event just to meet me, meet other people, and feel like they're part of a community. What's your experience with your clients in creating that overall experience, which is what can be such a huge differentiator? The annual event's a great example, right? And we talked about sales kickoffs earlier. That is missing. And 
I think it's missing from the vendor relationship perspective more than anywhere else is because you don't get that meet and greet. You don't have that. And getting back to that, I think, is going to be tough. Um, you talk about producing that great customer experience. One of the things we've been working with people to do is map their buyer's journey a little bit differently and then map it against additional internal resources and involve the wider team in the customer relationship. So don't just leave it up to sales or customer success or operations, but actually coordinate that all the way through to make sure you're touching a additional people because people are still shifting and changing jobs and losing positions sometimes as companies reorg. And B, also to make sure you have more ears on the ground that can bring things back in, not just, you know, take advantage of what's already there. Yeah. And how much of that when you when you you're coaching these folks up, how much of that is going back to people that you worked with in the past and saying, hey, listen, there's there's more lifetime value there. Right. Whether they're still with the same company or they're with a different company, you know, go see go talk to them, see what you can do to help them become successful, regardless of where they are. And let's you know, let's continue to deepen that relationship because it's easier to do that than to go find another customer in the middle of a pandemic. There is that right. And the first thing we've got people doing is, do you make the money or do you save the money? Right. Mm -hmm that conversation know where you sit in that food stack and mm -hmm. where your solution that you're talking about sits going back to the people you've known absolutely value there but there's also risk there and i ended up in a piece of this business i never expected to so i jokingly call it forensic sales management mm -hmm. right it's all the people i was prospecting in march and april that said no we don't need you we've got these guys we've known these we've known these buyers forever we've known the executives forever whatever that then lost a deal to a competitor they didn't know was there or their contacts had packaged out and you're doing a retread and trying to get back in and figure out where to go. So yes, get there, have the conversations with the people that you've known and the lifetime value of a customer, certainly key, but also position in case somebody shifts, somebody leaves, somebody packages out. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, uh, how do you, talk to your clients about figuring out what they don't know, right? Because there's so much, there's so many things lurking around the corner and we've got 50 clients, we've got a hundred clients and we've got another hundred prospects. How do we, how do we make sure we're on top of all that? So it, my business, I really focus on my clients on their marquee wins, right? Their must win deals. So we start at what's the one that's going to move the needle. What's the three that are your game changers for the year? whether it's project or client by name. And then we do a mapping exercise there by fit and by function, right? So what's the title level? What functional area do they sit in? And it's a simple traffic light system. It's not rocket science. It's just discipline of doing it. And then you look at, do you know this person? Do they have to say yes? Do you have a red, yellow, or a green there? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and sitting down and doing that over a couple of hours, you, you spot some gaps. And what we find is there's a lot of gray. They don't know if the person's for you or against you, and they think they're in the process, but they're not sure. And the, the real task is then going and have that conversation with that long-term contact and figuring out where everybody truly sits and what their power base is. Yeah, that's great. Now, have you seen any shifts in decision-making um, processes as we've gone into a more, uh, a more virtual-oriented world? It used to be 
you know, if there was if there was any doubt, if there was any risk to my career to bringing you in, let's say, I would get all the gang together and we'd sit in the boardroom and you do a dog and pony show. And then I go look around the room and I go, hey, what do you think? Right. Has that have you noticed that shift at all? Has there been has there been a change in that? Does everybody jump on a Zoom meeting and then they go, hey, what do you think? Or how, how has that changed? The, the biggest shift has been the financial discipline that's been put in place across a variety of clients and segments that my folks work with, right? And looking at, okay, you know what? This is somebody in manufacturing. This is a manufacturing decision. It's not a consumable. Who has to say yes? And then getting that last look at, is it a CFO? Is it a contracts manager or whoever? That one extra push and their review on what it's going to do. Um, that's been the biggest piece we've seen and continue to see is that. Um, the other thing we've seen is actually C-suite executives deferring to finance more, which is always an interesting thing, right? So you're walking down the road, you're walking down the road, you've done all your selling right, you know that finance has to have the final approval. And then they run a whole set of metrics against the deal that actually makes a decision. And we've actually seen presidents and CEOs overruled by CFOs recently. Yeah, I mean that's uh, you meant you alluded to the two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten real estate uh, crisis. That's that's a function of recessionary thinking, right? There's nobody who's nobody at the C level who's willing to trust their gut, even if you're showing, uh, demonstrating a, a fantastic return on investment. You're making money. You're saving money. You're reducing risk. They're always going to go to the CFO because if they have to answer to a board or a management committee, they're going to say, listen, I went to the CFO and he vetted it and he said it was good. So I'm not spending your money, you know, frivolously. So that's definitely, definitely a recessionary function. What do you, what's your counsel when you're, when you're walking in then to a, to a pitch or to a presentation, do you tell people, hey, listen, you know, lead with the rational step-by-step -step ROI, focus on building a relationship first and then go with the ROI? How do you, how do you coach your, uh, your sales folks before they walk into that initial meeting? Don't hide from the financial decision maker. Make them part of the process. They may not want to sit in every meeting, but understand their triggers and their drivers before you get to that final stage. Because if they've not heard from you all along the way, you're counting on your other contacts to represent you accurately. So build the relationship. Yes, it won't be as cozy as your primary relationships probably, but understand what's going on. The other counsel that we give a lot is understanding what's going on on their sales side of the business, even if that's not where your product goes. So you understand the attitudes of their customers and the challenges they're facing as a company and then leverage that across as part of your solution. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, that, I think that's great advice. Uh, candidly, the, the financial people, the less sterile you can make that decision, the better off you're going to be. If they, if they only have words on a page, numbers on a page to use to evaluate you against somebody else, you lose your competitive advantage. And if you're, if you're thinking your competitive advantage is somewhere based in price, you don't have a competitive advantage. <laughs> So what, what do I, what do I do? How do I, how do I connect with the CFO? I mean, do I, do I have to go back to school and learn to learn to read uh, spreadsheets? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's funny. The, the thing I teach people is if 
the financial person you're calling on, if it's a controller or CFO, somewhere in that food stack, do they care about the above the line price or the below the line price? So is it the cost of the acquisition of goods that are gonna get you if you're leading on price? Or is it the total cost of ownership or the total cost of transaction? Because those are different conversations and different lovers. And you're right, you, you might have to do a little reading, but it's okay, I, I, I love the line, look, I'm a dumb sales guy, so I'm just trying to understand this. Is this what I heard matters to you? So yes, you care about the buy price, but the total cost of this over 36 months or 60 months or whatever the deal is to operate it, to maintain it, to support it, to replenish it, whatever it is, that's important to you. There's been situations and my favorite story is I once sold something, a $150 million deal, so it wasn't chump change for 5% more than my competitor, but I took 12% out of their internal cost by doing it and looking at terms and logistics and things like that. So you can be creative and finance will give you opportunities there that you won't get from other parts of the business. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, I like that. I like that a lot. And it makes the, if you're, if your main buyer is in some other aspect of the business and you've won over the CFO or you've won over the finance team, it makes your main buyer's life so much easier because they're not, they're not facing headwinds every time they go in there and there's perhaps scope creep or, you know, they have, there has to be an add on all of a sudden that conversation is, Hey, let's just get on the phone and, you know, talk to Joe in accounting. He knows you and, and let's, let's get his feedback on this. And then you make a rational case because you've already got your, your main client on board and Joe has already seen you and he trusts you. So, you know, you're that's, I think that as far as a sales professional goes, is almost the ideal scenario where you're in with the finance team and that barrier to entry is so high that somebody unseating you has to win over the C CFO first and then come back and win over your, your main client. Absolutely, right. And you can button up terms that other people aren't even gonna bring to the table. Talk, talk a little bit more. Talk a little bit more about that. What are what are some what are some terms that we could leverage to really make the CFO happy that our that our you know ultimate buyer is going to be just giddy that we that we helped with. So, are you looking at a deferred deployment? So, do you have an advantage where maybe it's rolling out in stages and you can structure the deal so it invoices in stages that are more akin to that? Do they want a discount for prepaying early and getting your cash better? You can structure your deal that way. Likewise, there's been a huge move and, you know, I kind of talked about software as a service a while back, but people moving things from a CapEx to an OpEx budget, you know, for accounting treatments and depending on what you're selling, if you can sell it in a mechanism that meets the accounting standards there, a lot of times the finance people really resonate with that. And frankly, it's a chance in many cases to make a little more margin because you're carrying the cost of the business. Now your business has to support it, but you have to be creative. You can't just go and sell on price. You can't just go and sell on, I'll be the fastest and the cheapest. Right, Eventually, right. there's no money. It's a race to the bottom. Sure, sure. Not only is it bad positioning from the outset, I mean, somebody's always gonna be cheaper, somebody's always gonna be faster, but you're, you're just setting yourself up. Even if you get that contract and it's a year contract, you're setting yourself to get knocked off or to have to go back in and resell right from the beginning every single year. You got to have a better, you got to have a better competitive advantage than, than that. Price and speed is something that's easily replicable. 
All right, talk to me uh, for a couple of minutes now about Red Zone. Tell me, tell me a little bit about, you know, I, I've been on your website. Those of you who haven't seen it, go to timkubiak.com, T-I-M-K-U-B-I-A-K.com, and check out Red Zone. What is Red Zone, and how did you come up with this idea? So I have a business partner named Steve Urell in this, and Steve was actually the sales coach that I hired to help evolve some of my teams three times in my career. And he's part of the inspiration for me going into the business this way. So what we found is CRM systems are great. Sales methodologies are great. And if you follow them and you do the work, that's fantastic. But there's always that one or two or three deals that each salesperson has that they have to win, that they don't really have enough eyes on it. In Red Zone, what that is intended to do is be CRM and sales system agnostic. So if you have a methodology, great. If you don't have best practices, we can talk about that too. But what it is, is it's an app and it can be delivered as an app, as an Excel version or as a Google Sheets version. And we sit down with our clients and go through this and really help them look at the deal, the four key people in the deal, give them a visual representation of where they stand, understanding buying criteria in the customer's words and what that expectation means in the customer's words, and also identifying who they're competing against. Can be literal competitors, Increasingly, like I said earlier, it's no decision and you have to overcome that. And then we work on them with a game plan. So the Red Zone app works by itself. We have a whole methodology around it that I, you know, like I said, is agnostic. It can work inside of Medic or MedPick or, you know, Miller Hyman or any of those as well. So that's really what Red Zone is. I've used it with my teams for the last seven years. And it's something I use with almost all of my coaching clients now. Well, that's great. Now, I, I also see on here that you've you're actually building. It's not just an app. You're actually building a community around the app, right? So they get the, you give the, you give folks the opportunity to be featured in a in a case study in the top seller section. So they increase their exposure. They're a member of a private Facebook group, and they get an invitation to monthly sales, best practices, webcasts. Um, what's the what's the adoption been like and how have you found the community to be of benefit to your clients? So the adoption's been great. Um, and for example, we didn't expect to ever deliver it in sheets. That came from a client request. Now we've got more clients as they, you know, as they're competing, Google's competing more with Microsoft, delivering it there. Um, part of the feedback we've got actually is more of our community is on Facebook and ironically just this last or on LinkedIn rather than Facebook, mm. just this last Friday, we actually created a LinkedIn, a closed LinkedIn group to support the community. So literally right before we got on, I was on with Steve and we were talking about who all we needed to invite to cross over. Um, and you know, the community is pretty good. Sometimes you naturally have competitors in there. So people have to watch, you know talking about their deals or their client names and just be sensible there. But beyond that, people have been really good about saying, hey, have you thought of, hey, I ran into this and this worked and sharing in that way. So really, you know, happy that we're building a community. Our goal is to actually have about a thousand people in it by the end of 2021. So we're excited by that and we're well on our way. That's terrific. And how did you stoke engagement in the community? How did you get people to open up and share? I, I, I so appreciate the fact that, you know, people are competitors and they don't want to give away any, you know, trade secrets. Like there's nothing new under the sun, but you certainly don't want to disclose any information on what you're doing with someone who someone else might want to have as a uh, as a client. 
How did you how did you get people to open up and to start sharing in the first place? So some of it is just being transparent, right? Treating sales as a profession. And and that's a big part of my message is sales is a legitimate profession, right? It is not, you are not successful in the long term if you don't put the work in, you don't continue to evolve. So creating that attitude from the classes, from the trainings and the workshops, and then inviting people in and engaging them. And the other part of it is, is frankly, we're giving away additional content to the folks that are our clients. One of the things that we did last spring was selling in the new normal. Well, we've continued that. We do it once a month. We gather all of the feedback we got and sanitize it from the coaching clients in that previous month and talk about what's changing in trends. Hey, we're seeing this. And sometimes we do it down to an industry segment. Sometimes we do it at more of a macro level. And that's another way to keep great engagement because we're inviting people in that community to that class. Yes, I will sell it as a standalone, but it's really designed for people that are part of our program and part of our system. Oh, that's interesting. So you'll sell the individual class to somebody just off the street and is the is the hope that you can follow up with them and pull them into either investing in red zone or in coaching and that sort of thing? Yeah. So the hope is, is A, to equip people to be more successful. And we figure if we're helping people sell and win at an entry-level price point, and one of the things I didn't want to do when I started my business was price out the individual contributors. Mm -hmm. So I've created a set of offers and I don't market them heavily. It's sort of like a word of mouth thing where entry price point is anywhere between 80 bucks a month and 400 bucks a month. So it's not the high end corporate coaching thing, but we've created programs that basically everyone can buy into that we really think can add value. Some of them are just sales one-on-one new onboarding things that we do for specific industry segments. We found people were going in and didn't understand channel economics and business partner models and things like that. So, we get them in there and we think that they'll grow with us much like I've grown with Steve myself, right? I was just carrying a bag and running the Eastern half of the U S when I met him. And by the time I was done, you know, I had a $750 million number and global responsibility. We think people will go on that journey as part of red zone as part of the community. We want to get them in. So who's the ideal person to, uh, you know, to connect with you about red zone. Who's the ideal person for this community? So it is the probably the person that has a few years under the belt. They're probably a six-figure, in, in some cases, even a seven-figure earner. They're typically largely coin-operated. And I'm speaking to the individuals, not the corporate level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they tend to be people that run their own business like it's a P, their own P&L, right? They're highly leveraged, you know, if not completely leveraged people. So... We have software salespeople, we have financial and wealth management people, we have independent insurance brokers in there, we have people that are chemical brokers and real estate folks in there that reach out. And that's a good starting point for the red zone folks because they have big deals, they're not transactional, um, or their transactional business isn't what they're gonna focus on. We found the the low entry point for people to be successful with red zones, really that $50,000 transaction up into the seven figures range. Interesting. So the the initial transaction, the the transact the dollars per transaction, it starts at usually fifty thousand for the for the folks who want to be part of that. What's the sales cycle like? Is it a is it a longer term sales cycle, and this is this is going to help them shorten it, or could it be a you know could it be a relatively short sales cycle by a big company with that type of investment? So it it could be a short sales cycle by a big company, right? 
And it, it could be a competitive takeaway play. It could be any number of things. And really part of what we preach inside of the red zone system is accelerate, accelerate the deals you should win by knowing where to go, where to call and understand what the real lovers are and what the real timing is. Compete. You're going to compete differently than you have by acknowledging what your competition is, forming a game plan and a strategy to go after it. And that finally leads to exit, which means, right, if you're just the third bid for them to have a price, don't waste your time. Don't burn the cycles. Mm, yeah, good advice. I like it. All right, before we go, let's take a couple of minutes and talk about your favorite metal bands. Who, who's first? Let's start. Let's start here. Best concert you've ever seen. Best metal concert you've ever seen. Metal concert I've ever seen. Uh, Metallica, Master of Puppets. Ah, nice. Okay, I I would go with uh, I would go with Metallica too. I saw them with i want to say van halen in monsters of rock there was it was metallica van halen and i forget who the third band white White lion white lion okay yeah 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 you're right white lion and it was it was a marathon man it was an all-day thing it was i i remember coming home and my clothes were soaked in like beer and it rained ah it was but it was a it was a great great show um what, what city what, did you see it in? I saw it in the Meadowlands in New Jersey. In uh, I I was I was born and raised in New York. I saw it. I saw it in the Meadowlands in New Jersey. Uh, I would say my fit. That wasn't my. That wasn't my favorite. That was that was a big deal. I think my favorite show, also the most frustrating show, was probably Aerosmith and Guns N' Roses. And the reason it was so frustrating is because Aerosmith finished and then we waited like two and a half hours for Guns N' Roses to come on. They weren't even in the stadium. (laughs) Mine was the opposite. So I saw that, I saw Guns N' Roses before they really broke open for Aerosmith when they were still on their way back up. Ah. And GNR blew Aerosmith off the stage. I saw them at Ironically, in Wheeling, West Virginia, in about a 3,500-seat auditorium, GNR came on. They were great, and then Aerosmith just tanked. Oh, wow. Yeah, the, the rumor was when I, I can't remember exactly what the, what the year was when we saw them, but the rumor was that they everything had to be completely separate and like sanitized because the Aerosmith guys were recovering addicts and guns, the Guns N' Roses guys were in the throes, as deeply in the throes of addiction as you could be. So they didn't even want to be in the same county uh, as each other. Uh, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I... Um, the the what's the group that you saw the most how many and how many times so i've actually seen alice cooper over 35 times 35 times wow that's amazing and did you like follow a concert for a couple of years or something follow a a show for a couple of years or did you just keep going back to see him over and over What, what 35 times is unbelievable so as a teenager right he would play he was making his comeback and he was playing small places so he'd play the same city two and three times within the length of a tour within 12 or 15 months and then crank out a new album so i knocked a bunch down there and then whatever city i lived in i always booked my travel around when he was going to be in town and then because i lived on the road he and one other band occasionally i would set my meetings to coincide with oh that's great 
<laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I thought, I, you know, I, I, I've seen, look, non-metal, I think I've seen Billy Joel six or seven times, but I've seen, I've seen Bon Jovi probably, uh, I think, six, maybe five or six times. The one time I saw the very last show in his Slippery When Wet tour, and his voice was so shot, Richie Sambora actually sang most of the songs, and John was just on stage with a guitar. <laughs> you talk about a tour that went on so long. That was a great example of one. That had to be two and a half years of touring. That was, uh, that was, it was, uh, they, they were smart in that they knew they had a good thing. I think when they, you know, when they released like their fifth song and it went to, and it went to number one from that album, they were like, listen, we are never giving this up. <laughs> as long as they're buying tickets, we're doing a show. Also, Def Leppard during uh, Hysteria was very much like that. I saw them, I think I saw them in my freshman year in college, and then I think I saw them on the same tour, like two years later in my, on my, in my junior year of college, I saw them in a stadium when it first started and in a, in a you know, a 20,000 seat arena toward the end of the tour. But that was, uh, that was just a tremendous, tremendous show. Great show. And it was a great album though. Oh, I still, I still listen to that. I listened to that album yesterday while I was running. I still listen to that album. It was, you know, there's a quirky thing about Def Leppard for a really long time. You couldn't get them as a download. You couldn't get any Def Leppard music. The only thing you could get as a download on like iTunes was like live versions. And, you know, I like to go to concerts, but I don't like to listen to, you know, live music. Uh, when I, I want to hear the I want to hear the mastered album. I want to hear somebody who sounds good. Now, look, if I'm listening to James Taylor, I'll listen to James Taylor all day live because his voice is just perfect. But, you know, heavy metal live, you're there for the experience. You're not necessarily there to hear an exact replica of what's on the album. I want to hear the album, you know. I like Don Dokken from 30 years ago. I don't like Don Dokken today. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good choice. <laughs> uh, Tim, it's been, uh, it's been such a pleasure. How can people find out more from you? Where's the best place for them to go? So everything for me starts at timkubiak.com. Uh, certainly, you can find me on LinkedIn. I offer, you know, I literally will give anyone an hour of my time. I know a lot of folks do that. It's not a sales pitch if you take me up on that. I will literally treat you like a paying client at the end of it. Awesome if you want more. So, yeah, if you go right to timkubiak.com, go to the homepage, right there on the homepage, there's a, there's a little button and you can, you, if you scroll down to the middle of the screen, you can just book a call with Tim right there, right after the, right after the introductory paragraph. So take Tim up on his offer, go to timkubiak.com, scroll down halfway through the page and book a call with Tim. Look, you got great value right here just in the last 30 minutes with us. Imagine what you'll get in a 20 minute conversation with him one-on-one. -on -one. All right, folks, that'll do it for another edition of the Inside BS Show. My name is Dave Lorenzo, and I'm here every day taking you inside business strategy, giving you the insider business secrets and cutting through all the inside BS that clogs up our life. My guest today was Tim Kubiak. He's made a generous offer for you to spend some time with him and help him diagnose whatever challenges you're having in sales. Go to timkubiak.com. It's a big button in the middle that says book a call. Join Tim there. Tim, it's been an honor and a pleasure having you with us. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. All right, folks, we'll see you right back here tomorrow. Until then, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.